we're going to get into this, uh, this new series. We're done with the Daniel. It's called uh, Revelation Revealed. We're going through the book of Revelation. And yeah, it's start with chapter one today. And, uh, and you know, I'm, I'm excited about it. Um, I just, uh, I wish tomorrow wasn't July 4th, so I didn't lose a day trying to do next week's sermon, right? That's the kind of point, that's the point it's at. But, but Revelation Revealed, it's what it's called, and from what you can see out there in the denominations, in the uh, non-denominations, the whole church world, there are really four different views of the book of Revelation. If you have a, a something called, you ever heard of a, the preterist? Um, it's what they're called. Um, they say that the meaning of the book of Revelation was good for only the time that it was written. All right? And then there's another group, very similar uh, view. They're, they're closely related to the preterist, but their view is that this book has been historically completed already. And these two views together... Uh, you know, the, these are the people that believe there is no rapture, that the church is going to dominate the, and, uh, and usher in the second coming of Christ. No antichrist, no tribulation. I just pray that, that they all go in the rapture, right? I mean, they're Christians. They have Jesus in their heart, but they're, they're deceived, okay? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just telling you, they're deceived, and and then you have the review, the view which regards the whole book of Revelation as allegorical. Just an allegory of the fight between good and evil. Um, I, that's an idealist type of view. And um, they're saying that, and I'm, I'm not saying there's not allegories all over the Bible. But um, the, then you have the, the view that I believe, my parents believe, many, many, many millions of Christians believe. Uh, some theologians call us futurists because we believe the Bible is exactly what it says it is, okay? The book of Revelation claims to be prophecy, uh, so we believe that, and we teach it that way. The book of Revelation, starting right out, calls verse 3 a book of prophecy, a book of prophecy, and there are other places that we'll see that it reinforces the fact through the book that it's a straight up, flat out prophecy. Chapter one is, is kind of an introductory chapter. And so I heard that. So this is, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be hitting the podium a lot, so we should just pick that up. The Old Testament alone has just short of 2,000 references of, of Christ's rule on earth. Just, uh, not just his first coming. I think you'll find the Bible is mostly prophecy. 80% of those, those prophecies have been fulfilled. 17 of the 39 books in the Old Testament give references to the second coming of Jesus. The New Testament has 318 references to the second coming of Jesus. Of course, we know, or if, or if you don't know, that, that what this book of Revelation leads up to is the second coming of the Jesus. Then it goes into the millennium. Nine out of ten denominations do not believe in or teach the millennium. Well, it's clear as day, clear as a bell. Twenty-three of the twenty-seven New Testament books mention the second coming of Christ. 
Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Don't forget that. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. He sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. And that's what this chapter is. It's a, in a big way, a revelation of Jesus Christ. The word shortly is, does not mean shortly. And it's a lot. In the, every time you see it in the book of Revelation, you, it just promise me, trust me, it means suddenly. Suddenly. That word shortly means suddenly in the book of Revelation. And also in verse 1, if we could put verse 1 on the screen again, see that it's a revelation of Jesus Christ, which what God gave to Jesus Christ. And so that word signified, he sent and signified it, means rendered it into signs by his angel unto his servant John. And so verse 2, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ in all things. I feel like I really have to pay attention here, okay? And so, of all things that he saw. And so verse 2 is saying that John saw this in vision form, and it was basically a drama unfolding before his eyes. Verse 3, blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. You're not going to find anywhere else in the Bible, if you read a specific book, that you get a guaranteed promised blessing for reading that book. But it, but it out and out just says that. And you're going to see sevens all over this book. Seven churches, seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, seven bowl judgments. The number seven is everywhere. Seven lampstands, seven stars, seven spirits, seven promises to the overcomer, seven angels, seven horns, seven eyes, seven heads, seven thunders, seven crowns, seven mountains, seven kings, seven beatitudes in Revelation. Seven beatitudes. And I did them last night, but I need to cut some things out of the sermon, so, because it went really long. Revelation is the revealing of something that was previously unseen or unknown. The Greek word used here for revelation is apocalypsis. That's where we get the word apocalypse. God has given us 2,000 years plus to see and prepare for what is coming that's going to involve the whole earth. Starvation, earthquakes, plagues, asteroids, i.e. Wormwood. April 13, 2029. There's something coming that, that date. Hail, fire, demon locusts, armies of 200 million. All this will be running rampant. If you read the bold judgments late in the tribulation, there will be no fresh water on earth. Imagine that, if all the fresh water is poison. So who has, who has water? Probably the Antichrist armies, if we just think about it, all his minions, and everybody that, that, that stored it up, right? Everybody that stored it up. So think of all the, the killing and murdering that's going to be going on just for water, 
When the Lord is saying blessed in verse 3, are we that readeth and hear the words of this prophecy, it's almost like the biggest blessing you could receive uh, is, is because we're not going to be there. That's the biggest blessing you can possibly receive. And you think about the last part of this verse, and keep those things which are written therein. Yeah, it says read, hear, and keep. Read it, hear it, and keep it. The Greek word for keep means to guard, watch, and protect. It means to take the central message of this letter and hold on to it with everything you have. Verse four, John to the seven churches, which are in Asia. This is a greeting. Grace be unto you and peace. From him, which is, and which was, and which is to come. And from the seven spirits, which are before his throne. You have John brushing by, for now, the seven churches in what's called Asia. It's not Asia. It's not real Asia. It's a Roman province in western Turkey. The Romans gave that, that province that name, Asia. And so it's, it's not the Asia that we're thinking of, right? And so, and we can, the, the exact location is western Turkey, mod, western part of modern day Turkey. Multiple people uh, that I would call scholars say, uh, the next phrase in this verse refers to the Trinity, If we could look at that verse again. Grace and peace to you. It's a greeting from the Trinity. From who? From him which is, which was, and which is to come. Well, that's God the Father. And the phrase from the seven spirits who are before the throne, multiple, multiple commentators believe this is the Holy Spirit. Why? He has a sevenfold operation according to Isaiah 11:2 that sevenfold operation according to Isaiah 11:2 wisdom understanding counsel might knowledge piety fear of the lord you can look it up i believe the holy spirit is addressed as seven spirits because of that sevenfold operation think about this even though he's god you'll never see a reference to him being on the throne. It's got him before the throne, but you never see one reference in the Bible of the Holy Spirit being on the throne. But here we have him before the throne. His area of operation is on the earth. Everything done by the Godhead on the earth is done through the Holy Spirit. Other theologians, just to give you every point of view, suspect these seven spirits or the seven angels mentioned later in this book. That, that give the chunk, trumpet judgments and the bold judgments, you know, uh, for the earth, for the people of the earth in the tribulation, will be administered by seven angels. But it, it's more, I just think way more, way more people that study this day in, day out, believe this is the actual Holy Spirit before the throne in the form of seven spirits. Makes you think of them differently, doesn't it? It's interesting. And so verse five, here, we're still in the greeting. And from Jesus Christ, there's your trinity. All right, the Father, the Holy Spirit, and then the Son, in this case, in this order, 
who is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. There's your trinity, and we can see in Revelation 1.5, Jesus is third in the greeting. So we've got Jesus Christ called the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth. He's got three titles here. And he is, whenever you see these titles throughout Revelation, it's him. It's him. It's referring to Jesus Christ, the prince of the kings of the earth, the first begotten of the dead, or the faithful witness. It's always talking about Jesus. Revelation 1.6, and hath made us kings and priests unto God. His father, to him be the glory, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Remember in the Old Testament, in regards to Israel, the kings were always out of the tribe of Judah. The priests were always out of the uh, tribe of Levi. Kings got in trouble. Multiple kings in the Old Testament for trying to do the job of a priest. There's only three people in the Bible that are both kings and priests. One was Melchizedek. You can see that in Psalms. It makes references to that. But in Hebrews, it explains it. He was a king and a priest. Jesus Christ was a king and a priest. And the third is the members of the body of Christ. All right? And so we'll talk more about that in chapters 4 and 5. Verse 7, behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so. Amen. This phrase, every eye shall see him in verse 7, you could think refers to the immediate vicinity of Jerusalem. This is talking about his second coming. But looking at technology, probably billions will see him with their iPhones. Because if you look at coming out of the bold judgments, as people are being scorched by the sun, I, just horrible things happening, um, and they're cursing God. This is everyone on earth, cursing God, blaspheming God. They know it's the wrath of God. Late, this is late in the tribulation, and what, you can just see it. Who are all they going to look to? They're all going to look to. And it says literally then that these demons come out of the false prophet's mouth, the antichrist's mouth, and Satan himself's mouth. And it's what it says, you can see, they get on the phone and they basically tell the world leaders, let's go after Israel, right? And then uh, sixth bowl judgment is the Euphrates River driving up, drying up. Why? So a 200 million man army from the east can come across. That's why people think it's China, right? So the world is watching this. They, they can't wait to see this. They're so angry. The, world, the world's ruined, at this point. It's ruined. And so they're angry at Israel, right? And so it's saying everyone's going to see this, the second coming on earth. And they that also which pierced him in verse 7 is referring to the Jews or to the descendants of those that pierced him. Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning of the ending, say, and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, and which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. This is in red letters. 
And the alpha and omega is the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, same way as Aleph and Tav are the first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet, same way as A and Z are English, first and last of the English, same kind of thing, Revelation 1.9. I, John, who am also your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God, for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So you have John referring to himself, and he does that five different times. Just a little history on John, since he's the author of this book. His mother and father were Zebedee and Salome. He was probably the younger of two brothers, and they have been taught to have been, uh, um, they've been, they've been thought to have been pretty well off financially. All right? So why? Because uh, Salome's mother ends up being a major financier of the ministry of Jesus. And if you don't think he needed a lot of money, think about feeding 12 guys every single day. Every single day. Just think of how, how much money would that be by in today's standards. And so John is a fisherman in the Galilee like his father. And he was partners with his brother and Peter and Andrew in the fishing business. They had paid servants helping them. So the inclination is their fishing business was not a small one. It was well-established, financially strong business. Most theologians believe that. John, the apostle, the disciple that Jesus loved, that's what he called himself, was an early disciple of John the Baptist. John, the apostle who penned the book of Revelation, was well-connected, not only financially, but we know he knew the high priest. He also, we know, he knew Nicodemus, knew him personally. Nicodemus would be what would be called that he did all the preaching, 80% of the preaching in that synagogue. John knew him. John was a member of the inner circle of Jesus. Out of the 12 disciples, you know, you had Peter, James, and John. They were at the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John are the three that are asked into the house in Matthew 9 when Jesus rose that little girl from the dead. You know, uh, it was Peter, James, and John plus Andrew. Jesus gives, it seems like, a private briefing in regards to his second coming. So you could definitely say they were his inner circle. And remember, from the cross, while hanging on the cross, Jesus assigned the care of his mother, not to his brothers, but to John. A lot of theologians believe the second book of John in the New Testament was a letter written from the apostle John to Jesus' mother Mary. John was exalted or, or exiled into the Isle of Patmos because of Roman Emperor Domitian ordered him there. After Domitian died, he's released from the Isle of Patmos goes back to Ephesus, reorganizes the church there, and eventually retires. The island that John was exiled on is about 10 miles long and six miles wide off the coast of Turkey. And today it's still called Patmos. It's interesting, you've got Domitian, the Roman emperor, banishing John to this lonely island because of his allegiance to the word of God in Jesus Christ. 
And on this island, John writes the greatest book of prophecy the world has ever known. This book was written in 96 AD. Just a little side note, the emperor Domitian is the brother of Titus. You'll remember we talked about Titus in the Daniel series, Last Days on Fallen Earth. Titus was the general that that destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. Domitian was his brother. Revelation 1.10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. A phrase in the spirit is used 13 times in the New Testament. Paul used it six times in the epistles. John uses it three times in Revelation. In Matthew 22:43, David or Jesus said David prophesied in the spirit. Luke 2:27. Uh, Simeon prophesied in the spirit when he saw Jesus as an infant while in his mother's arms. Now we have the apostle John in the spirit and the phrase Heard behind me a great voice as a trumpet, as a trumpet. That does not mean the tones, the voice resembled a trumpet. That means it was loud and clear like a trumpet. And so Revelation 1.11. Hmm. I think I feel like a, yes, yes, yes. Revelation 1.11, saying, I'm Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest, write in a book and send it out into the seven churches, which are in Asia, Ephesus, Smyrna, unto Pergamos. And I called dad yesterday. How do, how do I pronounce that, dad? That southern drawl he has, Thyatira. <laughs> Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So this letter, which is in uh, the book of Revelation, is sent to these seven churches that just mentioned. This, this is the voice of Jesus Christ speaking at this point. And these churches that are being written to are viewed as a representative of the whole Christian church today. So verse 12, I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Did we do verse 11? We did. These candlesticks or lampstands, as they're also called in other translations. Uh, there's not an exact description. The number seven often being referred to God's perfect number of completion and perfection. And because of that, and because there's seven of them, most scholars believe this is, this is to the whole Christian church. All right? This is to all of them. For all time, this is to us. That's why the next couple of weeks are really important. Revelation 1.13, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, a girt about the paps with a golden girdle. So we have Jesus standing in the midst. So picture this, these candlesticks. I don't know if they're floating, if they're on stands. He's in the middle of the seven candlesticks. And we know it's Jesus because he's being called the Son of Man. And it's saying that he's got across his chest is, is a golden breastplate. That's what it's saying. The term Son of Man, uh, as we know, is a term for Jesus. 
That term is used 88 times in the New Testament. This is the term Jesus used the most for himself. He called himself the Son of Man a lot. But but think about this. We're getting an actual description of Jesus Christ here. You know, when he was raised from the dead. We never got a real description after he was raised from the dead. I mean, we knew he could, like, walk through walls and doors But remember in Emmaus, those disciples didn't recognize him? They didn't even recognize him. He walked with them for seven miles. Or when he had breakfast with the disciples at the Sea of Galilee. We never got a description. Verse 14, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as as a flame of fire. They were not flames. They were as a flame. I wonder if the Jesus, the apostle John saw standing before him looked like the G, more like the Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration than the, than the one he sat in the upper room with. Verse, verse 15, and his feet like unto fine brass as if they burned in a furnace and his voice as the sound of many waters. It says his feet were likened unto what, what bronze would look like glowing in a furnace. So other than his hands and his head, his feet are the only things showing on his body. It's said by Greek scholars, the phrase, and his feet unto like fine brass as if they burned in a furnace. They say there aren't appropriate English words to describe what John is trying to say on this foot comment. So they're not, in other words, the translation is, it's just not, it's not close, but we know it has to do with brass, and if you do a word study on brass in the Bible, you would find that brass is just about always associated or a type of judgment, all right? Remember the serpent of brass? Remember the whole, the serpent and the cross and all that stuff that they turned into, wound up turning into an idol, all that, the, the phrase and his voice, the sound of many waters, is presenting a picture of him of having a voice that is awe-inspiring and powerful. Remember Daniel 10.6? Daniel described the voice of the Ancient of Days, who is God the Father, sounding like the voice of a multitude. But the voice of a multitude was in earlier Hebrew writings compared to the sounds of the waves of the sea. So what that's saying is God the Father's voice has been compared to the waves of the sea. So what many waters means in this case is think about standing, especially at night, and you hear four or five foot waves hitting, coming into the shore, right? It's loud, isn't it? But there's something really peaceful about it too, isn't there? It's a calming, calming effect. That's, that's what his voice is like here. It's loud, it's clear, but just there's something peaceful peaceful about it. It's not the still small voice. Verse 16, and he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. So let's just cover the seven stars. Even though in, in the last verse of the chapter, Jesus calls the seven stars angels of the seven churches, right? 
and the seven candlesticks, the seven churches? Two points of view on this. And I found there are far fewer commentators that believe these seven stars in his right hand are literal angels. Most commentators believe, I'm just telling you what, what the consensus is, believe that this is referring to the seven pastors of those seven churches. Because the Greek word used there is angelos, which can mean either angel or messenger. It has two meanings. The word angels is used of men in the book of Revelation 14 other times. It's, count, it's used for man. The word angel, angelos as in messenger, so it's, it's the view, I promise you, of most commentators, these seven stars are representing seven pastors of these seven churches that it refers to in Revelation 1.11. Think about this. The stars are in Jesus' right hand. It's, it's almost like it's saying they're there to be used by him, right? Almost like a tool which, which fits both angels and pastors. But here's where it doesn't fit. But also in the Lord's hand is a place of comfort and protection. You can see that all over Psalms. There's nowhere in scripture can you find angels being safely held in God's hands. All over the scriptures can you find his children being safely held in his hands. And for sure those people who are in the front lines of just a, at this point, a wicked spiritual war, it's the pastors. It's the pastors. So I believe what most believe that these seven angels are the seven pastors of these seven churches. The two-edged sword coming out of his mouth as it talks about in verse 16, it's the same word that lays bare the thoughts and intents of the soul. Hebrews 4.12, or according to 2 Corinthians 10.4, the same which weapon which Christ will subdue his enemies. The sword is representing the word of God. And I find it really interesting, and I wonder if in the spirit we have the same look. Why? Just because Isaiah 49.2. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, as he hid me, hides you. Think about him holding out his hand and hiding you in his shadow. That word shaft in the Amplified, it's an arrow. He has made me like a polished arrow. Pretty perfect weapon. In his quiver, he has hidden and concealed me. You're a weapon. You're a weapon. He's going to fire. Your mouth is a weapon. That's what it's saying. That's what it's saying. And so, and so that's Isaiah 49 too. And you have the Antichrist being consumed by the mouth of Jesus in 2 Thessalonians. So Revelation 1.17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, fear not, I'm the first and the last. So it's obvious when John looks upon the countenance of Jesus, he just, just falls like a sack. He, he may have fainted, because it said as if he died. Right? And, and so probably John, being a, a very old man, maybe his knees gave out from the fear. Has anyone's ever, knees ever given out from fear? 
Raise your hand if it has. I won't, with that, that's, a, that's a sermon in itself, right? So probably John being very old man, his knees gave out. John's old friend, whom he'd laid his head on his chest. Same guy. Think about this, Last Supper. John with his head on his chest eating, eating olives. John had the closest relationship. Can you see me on Thanksgiving with my head on Mac's chest? The turkey leg. So close. Even Peter, think about that. Jesus, he's sitting there. Think, I mean, I'd be like, you know, just, just move over. Jesus is sitting there and he's telling him, yeah, somebody's going to betray me. You know, and John's. And Peter looks at John, maybe pokes him and says, ask him which one it is. Who is it, my Lord? You know, so Peter couldn't even, he couldn't even ask. They're asking John to ask the tough questions. So you know, he was the closest, right? He was the closest. And just, just so he collapses. He just collapses like he's dead. And, and Jesus just touches him and says, don't, don't be afraid. And just that touch and the words, do not be afraid. So we have peace flooding into John and Jesus continuing to speak. In verse 17, he calls himself the first and the last. This is similar to the alpha and omega that we saw, which means the beginning and the end. The phrase, the, I am the first and the last, you can see in Isaiah 44, 6. It's all over the Bible. Remember the name Jehovah can be translated, I am. Remember Jesus told the Jews that he was equal with God the Father. His exact words were in John 8, 58, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham, I am. It wasn't I was, I am. Just think of John's emotions here. He traveled with this guy, fished with this guy, ate with him. And he's looking at Jesus, the perfect white hair like glowing compared to John's gray his clothes show royalty everything about him speaks of strength he looked completely different than that afternoon six decades earlier if we could put that sculpture up it seems as as if Jesus is more or less saying I've got one more thing for you to do buddy so get your pen and let's get rolling verse 18 he says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive evermore. Amen. I have the keys of hell and death. Looking at verse 18, the phrase that interests me is I have the keys of hell and death. That is through Jesus' suffering, death, resurrection. Through that, he won the right to have the keys to hell and death. And we, we see hell as this vast, unseen realm into which men are ushered by death, dark, confusion, mysterious. He's, you know, as afraid of Satan as everyone is. You know, Satan can't be everywhere at once. Are you aware of that? And his, his, his angels are limited. He had one-third of them. Uh, Smith Wigglesworth, it's documented, raised 13 people from the dead. Documented people. It really was 22. Satan showed up himself, gave 
Smith Wigglesworth a personal visit. Smith Wigglesworth woke up and Satan was at the end of his bed and he said, oh, it's only you and turned over and went back to sleep. He has no power. No, so few realize that. So few realize that. Jesus ha has the keys and of, of, of hell and death, and they are under his authority. He speaks of the gates of hell and those keys in Matthew 16, 18. I don't think we really think about this a lot. We look at what he went through on the cross. I try to put myself in front of the cross every day. And the resurrection. You know, the Bible says you were raised with him. Do you ever picture yourself being raised? What did that look like? And I'm not a hell, fire, and brimstone guy pre type preacher. 80% of my messages are on the gift of righteousness and the grace of God. And I do a lot of Old Testament types things like that, but, you know, and I certainly don't agree with everything Dake said, that, that translator, but, but the Dake Bible has 88 facts on hell, and we talked a lot about Jesus today, but are we not, but we are not really conscious of the fact that he took the keys to this place. He won them. And that, that you're about to hear what you're about to hear. He got that key. He went down there. He was down there for 72 hours. Okay? And, and you know, it says, there's a scripture in Colossians looking at translation. He got the victory. And we don't know what that looks like, but there's one, uh, one translation said he had a parade through hell. Well, what was he got a parade with? No, remember how the Romans... What they would, when they would defeat a civilization, they would take their, all the prisoners and they would, they would put them in chains and walk them through the middle of Rome. Big parade. Colossians says he had a parade, one translation said. So, but I believe he had to be punished down there first, just like he had to be punished up here. Why would it change it down there? And so we conscious of this. All, all these facts I'm going to give you in many cases are backed up by eight or nine scriptures. It's all found in the Bible. It says people are forced, forced into hell. People are cast into hell. Hell, unlike the grave, is a place of activity. It's a, a place that's alive. It's, it's a place of wrath, a place of sorrow, a place of fire, a place of power, a place of full consciousness. A place for the soul and the spirit, not the body. A place of conversations. A place where many kings and chief, one, chief ones of the earth live after death. A place where its inhabitants are stirred up at the coming of others. So they know. They know when there's, there's new ones coming in. Because there's new ones coming in all the time. It stirs them up. A place where great men acknowledge their defeat place where men recognize and converse with one another, a place where knowledge and memory exist, a place of torment, a place of prayer, a place of regret over mistreatment of others, a place where men still have willpower, though it is too late to accept God's terms, 
a place where men are conscious of life on earth but cannot visit earth to warn men of real torments, a place where the lost become conscious of the need of soul winning, a place so terrible. That's deep. That's a deep, deep statement there. Someone down there burning is thinking, I hope somebody wins my son, right? Somebody win my atheist son. That's just a deep thought right there. A place where souls are, are not burned up by the fire. A place of cruelty. A place that is never full or satisfied. A place that receives men in numbers like flocks of sheep. So that gives you a description of what it looks like at the entrance. Big crowds. 250,000 people die on earth a day. Right? So they're standing there. Can you imagine the realization? And they're having, we're, this is it. You know, they're, this is it. Imagine with Jesus. I, I'm sure they gave him a demonic escort to the front of the line immediately that they wanted him in there. A place that receives men in numbers like flocks of sheep. A place of gates and bars. A place of debasement. A place of pain. The fire in it is as literal as the mountains. Men go alive into, into it. The, the Raphaim or giants are there for sexual sins. Every man in hell will be brought out and judged. The confinement of angels and demons to certain prisons because of certain sins proves that others, the immortal souls and spirits of the human race, can also be confined to material prisons in the underworld. How many scriptures on that? One, two, three, four, five, six scriptures on that. And you just think he went there. He had to go there and win. He had to go there and win now. Because it said he had to win. He went down there and won them. And we don't think about that. We just think it, what a horrible thing on the cross, right? All of that. Well, what about the 72 hours where he got the keys to hell and death? Revelation 1.19, write the thing, he's saying to John, write the things which you've seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. He's telling John, don't just write the things he's already seen, that is Jesus himself, but which are, and the things in the coming. So you've got past, present, and future tense. As we close here, he says, write the things which are existing right now. Right, what you just saw, which is me, and the candlesticks and the stars and everything I said, but the things which are right now are chapters two and three. The seven churches are going to get seven letters. And I personally believe, and many commentators believe, and I'm, that I'm studying after, they believe chapters two and three are maybe the most important part of the entire book of Revelation. These next two chapters. Revelations four through 22 is incredible stuff. But we're going to watch chapters 4 through 22 from heaven. Okay? And you say, well, if we're, we're not even going to be here for this, why even go through chapters 4 through 22? Because the Bible says, if you're focused on the rapture, it purifies your soul. And trust me, Revelation chapter 4 through 22 will make you not only focus on the rapture, it will make you sure you are, want, you are going in the rapture. It will. It'll get your mind on it. 
But the part that really affects us in Revelation is chapters two and three. So that's what this scripture in Revelation 1.19 means. He has to, to, to write the things that he's seeing here in the first chapter, the things which were present then, which were to these churches, and the things which are to come. But remember, this is, you would say this is, these are the things that pertain to us now, these next two chapters. Verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, the seven golden candlesticks, can be translated lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. We could say that the candlesticks are sometimes translate lampstands are on the earth. I'm just trying to give you a heads up. You're going to find those candlesticks in heaven in chapter 4. Why? Because they're the body of Christ. We just read it. Why, why are they candlesticks? Because they bear light. One thing we're going to talk about next week is why these particular seven churches. Why? You, you can find 20 or 30 other churches in the New Testament. Antioch, the base church, is not even mentioned. Jerusalem, Rome. So why, why, why did he pick these seven? We're going to talk about that next week. Remember I told you about the different takes on the seven stars in his hand and how most theologians believe the seven stars are representing the pastors of these churches. Really, what it's saying is it represents all pastors, all churches. That's how we take it. So we've covered, uh, you know, seven, the seven stars. We've covered the first 20 verses of Revelation, the first chapter and uh, that's more than anything. It's an introductory chapter. And so I'm just, uh, I'm excited about this. I'm motivated to do this. I just wish we all had to go into work tomorrow. I know it's that sad, isn't it? So just, because, <laughs> but we're not. We're going to rest. And so on that, we're, let's go ahead and hand out communion as we close the service. Maybe I'll just come in all by myself. And so, we're going to close with communion on this, on America's birthday. Uh, let me tell you a story here. Let's do it a little bit different today. It's just, you're communing with God. I'm trying to make you thankful for your God. Because when you're thankful, you you. you it's okay to say this. You can receive more. All right? And so, uh, we lived in Singapore for uh, two years, going to Rama Bible Training Center. My children were very little. Uh, first, no. First and fourth grade. So, uh, a friend of mine took us uh, to a, uh, a Hindu holiday called Taipusam, right? If you can figure out how to spell it, you can Google it. And, you know, the Hindus, they, they promote the fact they worship one God. The Hindus worship a hundred million gods, okay? All right? And so... Well, what they do is all these families get together. This is a family event. And the whole family makes this crown. They all gather. 
down in little India, in Singapore. And these crowns they put on their head and they're this big. There's an inner crown, then there's an outer crown. Some of them are really tall. Some of them have their gods on top of the crown. So they weigh as much as 150 pounds. The more it weighs, the more blessing you get. And so they, but and they, to stabilize these crowns, they take, there's, there's spikes on chains that are connected to the crowns and they run these spikes, skinny little needly spikes through like the, the flesh on the side of their chest. You can see it come in and go out. And on the scapulas, on their backs, through the skin, puncture the skin, stabilize it. And it, it hurts, right? So, so they have to do like a half mile walk like this. And their family's cheering them on, right? And they're, they're getting blessing for their family. These guys are like heroes for their family. And to make it worse, they're, they're stuffing, they're tearing the skin in some cases stuffing in little pieces of lime into where it's bleeding or at least squeezing lime into where those spikes are holding and and the whole i, I look at my friend solomon and i said why he's so they can get blessing from their gods jim it gives them prosperity it's pros for the prosperity of their family jim and, and this this i i've never seen more glowing red eyes, more demonic stuff going on. It was demonic. My kids are like, wow. Blood everywhere. This guy takes his lime, bloody lime, throws it. And I was trying to remember this. He either looked at me like, look what we do for our gods, or he said it, right? Either way, me and my friend knew, the friend that took, knew I needed to see this. And I remember it now. It was my friend that said it. Yes, Jim, but what has our God done for us? Look what they have to do for their gods. And what has our God done for us? If we could just put that sculpture up. And let's take communion on that note. You can stand or you can sit. I just want you to receive from it. Receive from them, however you're comfortable. We love you, Lord, because you first loved us. We thank you for everything you've given us. We thank you for a revelation of Jesus Christ and for healing for our bodies. He took the bread and he broke it. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. It's broken for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Thank you, Lord. You bore our griefs and you carried our sorrows. Thank you, Lord. He took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant. Cut in my blood. As often as you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. We receive the forgiveness of our sins past, present, future in the name of Jesus Christ because of what you did on the cross and the resurrection in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.